Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming, and for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you. Are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Juanette Kruger, Izel Ghos, Samantha, Cindy, Franz Vermark, Cody C, David G, Tulani Corsa, Carmel Sentler, Melanie, Carmen, Warren, Mario Monroe, Pauline, Narina Dreyer, Jana Lawrence, Bulelwa, Talana Lowe, and Rhea DeVette for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to a Spotlight Minisode. If you've only been listening to the podcast for a short while, you might not even know what a Spotlight Minisode is, because I haven't done one in a really long time. But just like I kicked my own butt back into gear on covering a missing persons case last week, which I also hadn't done in a very long time, I decided that this week I'd head back into minisodes too. If you haven't heard a Spotlight minisode before, I essentially use them to talk about cases that are in the news at the moment and other related true crime topics. So let's get into it. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. The first recent case I want to discuss is one I feel like many of us could probably resonate with. Or maybe it's just me. Cash and transit heists have become a huge issue in South Africa. Sadly, many cash and transit guards have lost their lives to robberies and bombings. A while back, we got a bit of a glimpse into what cash-in-transit guards often have to deal with when a video of a guard expertly navigating his van out of an attempted robbery went viral on the internet. The driver, Leo Prinsloo, 
is a former member of the SAPS task force, and he became an internet sensation for his cool demeanor while he and his colleague were literally under fire on the road. Unfortunately, this isn't always the case for these guards, and it's very common for these vans to be bombed while driving and for the occupants to die in the process. Of course, one of the most vulnerable points for any cash-in-transit van team is going to be when they stop, either to collect or deliver cash. They're a common sight at ATMs in shopping centres across the country, and I will admit to walking a very wide berth around these guards as they stand in front of the ATMs with their very large weapons. Guards are trained to watch out for distractions during this time, as they may be indications of a pending robbery attempt. I once pulled into a shopping centre parking lot to use the ATM, and the cash-in-transit guys were filling up the machines, so I decided to wait in my car. I watched as an elderly man, who was also waiting for the machines to be ready to use, engaged the guard in conversation. With my window down, I could hear the man reminiscing about his army days, when he too had been armed with a weapon similar to the one the guard was holding, and he was asking the guard questions about the gun. Surprisingly, the guard seemed quite open to the conversation at first, smiling and chatting with the elderly man. I watched the scene with growing concern, though, as the elderly man got more and more excited and stepped closer and closer to the guard, reaching out and pointing at his gun, almost touching it. The guard clearly became concerned and took a big step back at the height of the older man's excitement. He boomed the word, Sir, at the man, which immediately stopped him in his tracks, and I think he suddenly realised how close he was to the guard. By that point, I was holding my breath and really just wanted to drive away and not witness what might happen if the elderly man actually reached out for the weapon in his blind enthusiasm. But also, I had no idea if I suddenly started my car if that would only make the situation worse. As the guard put an end to the interaction, the older man smiled wanly backed off and stood a good distance away until the guards were finished loading. I finally let out a breath I'd been holding pretty much the whole time. I've thought about this incident a few times since then, mostly about the excitement on the elderly man's face as he reminisced about his army years, and how, in a second, that excitement could have turned deadly. I thought about that guard, too. How he undoubtedly initially didn't think the old man to be any threat and was happy to engage. But how, at one point, that assumption actually put his life in immense jeopardy, as the older man had him completely pinned in a corner. I thought about this incident again this week, when I saw that a cash-and-transit guard had been charged with murder after shooting a civilian at an ATM. On the 4th of October, a cash-and-transit team pulled up to the ATMs at Jabulani Mall in Soweto. There was a queue at the ATM, 
and one of the guards allegedly asked the people to make way so that he could access the ATM. Everyone seemingly complied except for one man, who insisted he was in a hurry and wanted to complete his transaction before the guards loaded cash into the ATM. The Gauteng police spokesperson said that a scuffle had ensued between the guard and the man, and, quote, in the process, the trigger of the firearm was pulled and the bullets hit the patron, end quote. Sadly, the man passed away at the scene. The guard was arrested and charged with murder. He is yet to appear in court, so he's not been named. Of course, the fact that there have been 217 cash-in-transit heists between January and August this year has been raised. And some experts say that after the facts are assessed, it may be determined that the guard had acted with the appropriate use of force if he felt his life was in danger. Independent crime and policing expert Dr. Johann Berger told News24 that, quote, the use of deadly force in this situation is covered by our common law, the principle of private defence. If the security official was attacked or directly threatened with serious injury or possible death, he would have to show why he felt that way. He will also have to show that the threat was imminent, that he had no other choice, and that his use of force was proportional to the threat he faced. End quote. Another expert, Calvin Rafadi, strongly feels that there were many other avenues that could have been explored before the trigger was pulled. He quite rightly says that it's entirely possible that the person could have been deaf or living with some mental health issue which had led him to refuse to comply. And if the man was not armed and hadn't attempted to take the weapon away from the guard, he couldn't see how that level of force could be acceptable. In addition, people in private service, such as these guards, don't actually have any authority over members of the public. They do have a duty to protect the money they're carrying, but not complying with their instructions, if you're not directly threatening their safety or their cash, is not an offence in any way. Of course, a full investigation will now be required, which likely, and hopefully, will include CCTV footage from that ATM, which should show exactly what happened. Only time will tell, but it's truly very sad that someone lost their life over a seemingly small incident. The next case I want to discuss is another like that of Gerard Ackerman, who was recently convicted of over 700 charges related to running a child sex ring, including rape, human trafficking, and possession of child pornography, or the preferable term, child abuse material. He was sentenced to 12 life sentences. I've mentioned this case briefly before in other episodes and do plan to cover it in its entirety, but I do want to wait for all the connected investigations around this case to be completed first. But this week, another terrifyingly similar case came to light when a Jeffreys Bay father and his stepson appeared in court, also for over 700 charges, ranging from rape and sexual assault 
to bestiality and the possession of child pornography or child abuse material. It is very likely that the identity of the pair will be withheld throughout this case, as sadly many of the charges relate to victims who are related to the pair. This past Wednesday, the 55-year-old father appeared in court on his own, and the court was advised that his co-accused, his 20-year-old stepson, is in hospital for an unknown reason. I will warn you that the details of their alleged crimes that I'm about to share are very disturbing. It's alleged that the father raped one of the three children, his eldest daughter, while the stepson allegedly raped all three of his half-siblings, including a little boy. Hundreds of child abuse images and videos were also recovered from devices in the home, which showed the three related victims, as well as many other children. According to the indictments read out in court, the minor victims lived in a house together with their parents and stepbrother. When the eldest daughter was 10 years old, her father introduced the victim to pornography. The man also allegedly frequently watched pornography while his minor children were present. In 2015, when the girl turned 11, her father began to physically abuse her in a sexual manner. This abuse continued until he was arrested in 2022. The father also allegedly coerced his 10-year-old son to download pornographic images from the internet and sell them to his clients. The man is also accused of recording his adult stepson sexually assaulting his half-siblings and selling those recordings to his clients. The 20-year-old stepson is also facing charges of having raped an unnamed adult male victim as well as an unnamed disabled adult female. It's believed that the two men were arrested after the oldest daughter in the family informed an aunt about what was happening in the home, and that woman reported the case to the police. The mother of the minor victims was also arrested, as it has emerged that she was well aware of what was taking place and had failed to report the incidents. When she discovered that her stepdaughter had informed her aunt of the crimes, the woman also allegedly informed her partner, the 55-year-old man, that police would be investigating him soon. This may have resulted in some evidence being destroyed before police could obtain an arrest warrant. The woman entered into a plea deal with the state earlier this year. She pleaded guilty to the charges against her and received a suspended sentence, but her children have been removed from her care. It's unknown as to whether she'll testify in the trial of the other accused. I am so glad that the family member to whom the victim reported the abuse actually took action and did not question or try to remedy things from inside the family as is so often the case. It must have taken a huge amount of courage for that young lady to speak about what was happening and she truly is a hero to herself and her three minor step-siblings. Cases like this while sickening and devastating, are extremely important to mapping out what is a truly complex network of child abuse material creators and distributors 
in this country and across the world. It's very likely that many of this individual's so-called clients were not in South Africa. Sadly, people from other countries will often target individuals in less resourced countries or countries where the exchange rate to the dollar is high as they're able to purchase more material and make greater demands for the type of child abuse material they want to purchase when they have the upper hand financially. Every time I hear about a case like this, I think about the interview I did with Colonel Kirsten Clark about digital sex crimes. If you haven't listened to that yet, I highly recommend it. She talks a bit about some of her investigations related to digital sex crimes involving minors, how you can protect yourself and your children. Here's hoping that these two accused, should they be found guilty, will get as many, if not more, life sentences than Ackerman did. The last case I want to talk about today is really quite bizarre and very gruesome. On Tuesday this week, a passerby stumbled upon a shocking scene in Beacon Valley in Cape Town. The decapitated body of an as-yet-unidentified man was found on a sidewalk, and his head was found nearby in a gift bag. Sadly, before police could cordon off the scene, Photographs and video were taken of the body by members of the public and circulated on social media, which could only have horrendous results if the family of the victim were to see them. There have been allegations that the dumping of the body was done strategically, as the place where the victim was found was not where they were killed, and that it is likely the victim was killed a few days before they were placed out in the open. Now, in many other countries, most people's minds would go to this being some sort of crazed serial murderer with a really bizarre modus operandi. But in countries, and particularly this province, where gangs and organized crime are extremely prevalent, it's far more likely that this was a gang-related murder. The way in which the victim was left is likely intended to dehumanize him even further and send a message to others. Of course, until the case is properly investigated, we won't know for sure whether this was gang-related, but it certainly seems like it. Another related headline that crossed our paths this week spoke to the issue of gang-related and organized crime-related activity in our country and especially in the Western Cape, when it was announced that more than 100 people had been murdered in the space of just a week in the Western Cape alone. Many of these murders appeared to be related to gang or organized crime activity, including one just around the corner from my house, where a hitman on a motorcycle opened fire on a vehicle in Montague Gardens in peak hour traffic killing the occupants and causing that victim to crash into oncoming traffic. The victim in that case is alleged to have been involved in construction contracts, and we do know that the so-called construction mafia have become an enormous problem in this province in the last few years. All of these events this week were just topped off, 
by the announcement of the arrest of the alleged 28th gang leader, Ralph Stanfield, and his wife, Nicole Johnson. The pair were arrested at their Constantia home earlier in the week, and Stanfield was released on bail, while Johnson thus far remains in custody. Allegations have been made in the past about Johnson's possible involvement in construction-related organised crime. Now, when I've discussed organised and gang-related crime in the past, I've often referenced this feeling that many have about these issues seemingly not being relevant to the ordinary citizen on the street. When these incidents happened this week, I saw that feeling come up again on social media, with people saying things like, you live by the sword, you die by the sword, distancing themselves from what they believe is someone else's problem. But for the people who were in the cars surrounding the one that was shot at the other day, and the vehicles the victim crashed into, the world of alleged organized and gang-related crime suddenly became terrifyingly pertinent to their lives. You could be driving to work at 8am on an ordinary Tuesday morning and suddenly find yourself next to a car being driven by a person who has a hit out on their lives. Then, it's very relevant to you. Less dramatically, so-called construction mafia syndicates are putting already stretched infrastructure at even further risk by essentially ensuring that any qualified non-criminal company is too scared to even tender for work and projects are going to syndicates who likely aren't the best people for the job, just so the gangs and crime bosses can get their cut. For inspectors and those issuing building permits, this has become a deadly job. In February this year, 48-year-old City of Cape Town employee Wendy Kloppers was gunned down outside a building site in Delft. It's alleged that this murder was a case of mistaken identity, with Kloppers being mistaken for a woman who'd won a construction bid against a criminal syndicate. And while that scenario is bad enough, how long is it until the people responsible for issuing permits and choosing successful bidders are also targeted if they refuse to be bribed? So while it might be easy for us to scroll past these stories with a shrug of our shoulders, we really shouldn't. If you ever go out in public, and even if you don't, you are most certainly being directly impacted by gang-related and organized crime syndicates. I've got an interview that I'll be releasing in a few weeks about financial crimes, and I spoke to an international expert about just how deep the rabbit holes go in terms of some of these really high-level crimes affecting every single South African in multiple ways. And that is your Spotlight Minisode for the week. I'll be back next week with a full case episode. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media, 
We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Mm-hmm.